Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Dean Riley. Dean, after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2012, you've been on a mission to give MS a doing. A self-confessed big unit, you've completed six marathons and are currently training for your seventh, as well as having done a host of other endurance events and challenges. You won the Edinburgh Evening News Local Hero Award and you were the first recipient of a Kelly's Hero Award from renowned Scottish presenter Lorraine Kelly. Dean, it's an enormous pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, great. I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to having a, a good, long, deep conversation with you today. That's uh, not a euphemism. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see where this takes us. So yeah, it would be absolutely fantastic if you could start by telling us a bit about you know, your early years, your background and, and what I suppose growing up was like for you. Yeah, well I um, was very fortunate, I had a great childhood. Um, grew up in Portobello, um, you know, my, my playground was the beach um, and the, the amusements as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up there as a kid, which was um, in that sort of environment, you know, down at the amusements, playing pool, sort of messing about and stuff like that. You have to think on your feet, you have to be quite, um, not streetwise, but just a bit, a bit, a bit slick. And um, so I used to get odd jobs to do in the, the amusements and the arcades and stuff. One of them being, I used to be the, I think I was about eight, and I worked in the tower amusements shouting out the bingo numbers in the prize bingo. <laughs> and I think now, and I think to you know most eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds now, they wouldn't, they wouldn't in a million years be comfortable doing something like that. Yeah. And here I was going, you know, Majors Den, number 10, and all the pattern and all the, the lines with it. And I think, you know, it's scary. Um, so I think... From a very young age, I always had that sort of—I wouldn't say Del Boy, but a, a very cheeky chappy, very easy going, and could sort of communicate with adults comfortably from a, a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably stood me in good stead for for everything that I've done throughout my life. Um, just that, you know, working in the amusements as a kid, seeing people gambling and all that sort of nonsense, um, and also towards—I think it was about maybe ten or eleven. My mum and dad bought a, a little cafe on on the beach and me and my friends used to have to work in it. You know, so you can imagine uh, you know, walking up to a cafe to get fish and chips and it's a ten year old that's serving you and his his mate's cooking it for you. It was just bizarre and it should never have happened and it wouldn't should never be the case, but we done it and it was just brilliant for learning experience to make you grow up and 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 be able to uh, get by I suppose with, with great social skills was was perfect yeah yeah that's great so where do you think your sort of your your kind of confidence comes from um I guess probably as a kid you know you were I was very, I was I was loved I was brought up properly I had good friends mm -hmm. um and I think probably you can only really look back on that as, a, as an adult and go yeah that's probably why I, I developed quite well as a, as a kid and I was quite confident I was um, always remember as a kid never been scared, you know. I'd, I've got friends that you know they'd be scared to 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 go into a room if their dad was there or or whatever it might be because mm -hmm. uh, the, how, the, how they are how their upbringing was. Whereas I was never I was never ever scared, you know. We yeah. uh, used to openly, you know, 
mock my dad and wind him up and play jokes on him and all sorts. And it was fantastic because there was never that fear element. And I think that's where um, probably my confidence probably developed in the house mm-hmm. and then into life because I was the way that I was. It just, sorry, it, it just kept growing. Yeah, that's brilliant. Excellent. So tell me a bit about um, your, your sort of career and I suppose your, your work aspirations um, when you maybe left school and, and where you thought that you might go. Well, I was in um, school, I was, it was quite obvious from the very beginning. Um, well, not, maybe not from the very beginning in, in high school, but um, primary school. There was, I was always looking for a quick way to avoid doing stuff or doing, <laughs> doing work. And, and I remember I was in primary one. I don't remember it, but I, I, you know when you, you you think back, all that time that you, you have sort of memories of it. But my mum relays it quite well. And uh, primary one, and I'd worked out that if you hand your book in first, nine times out of ten it didn't get marked. So everybody was sitting doing their work, and I was clever enough to to work out that if I put mine in very first, there was a fifty-fifty chance I'd I'd get my my book checked. But if I put mine in third or fourth. There was no chance because by the time the books piled up, she had no time to mark them and she just handed them back out in the morning. <laughs> so I managed to work this out at five year old and I got away with not doing any work in class for about three months. <laughs> and the teacher pulled my mum aside and went, I, I don't know what to do because on one hand, I can kind of, uh, you know, recognise that's that's pretty clever. Yeah. She's but the second, I want to give, I want to shout him and give him a proper row, but then I look at him and he's got a wee cute face and <laughs> I had that when I was when I was a kid I had a, a, a cute wee cheeky boy face and they just the teachers just didn't want to give me a row yeah. and um and then just sort of that sort of um initiative and and sort of cunning has probably served me well throughout throughout my year, my years going into high school um you know I remember starting in first year my sister was very academic she went on to university and and got degrees and things like that but it was it was Clear earlier on in, in high school that wasn't going to be the case for me. I did, I did try. I went, you know, day one we have V-neck sweater on and shirt and tie, and I think I lasted about a week at that. Um, <laughs> and another occasion where, you know, probably my personality probably shone through a little bit more as well was my dad had invested in a an embroidery shop, and up the stairs in the embroidery shop we would do your name on a t-shirt or we'd do school badges or things like that. And downstairs, we had, my dad would do counterfeit Pringle scarves. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm going. If he hears this, he'd be like, You're "Grass." So we done. We used to make make Pringle scarves, and, and I remember wearing one to school one day, and the, and the teacher pulled me aside and went, "Right, Riley, where did you nick that from?" I said, oh, "I've never nicked this. This is mine." At the time, you know, we're looking back in '92, '93. Pringle were pretty, pretty big at the point and they were expensive and I was like no no it's mine no chance who did you nick it from I said look I've got loads of them I said what do you mean and I've opened my bag because I took some of them to school with me to try and sell to my friends I said I've got grey I've got blue I've got black I've got uh, camel he's like what, what, what? and I says and they're, they're 25 quid each but for you I'll do two for 40 <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he sort of looked at me and I thought oh you've gone too far Dean <laughs> You get that little thought in your head, you're like, oh, you've gone too far, you've gone, you're getting it. <laughs> and he went, I'll take a grey and a blue. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. And um, from that moment on, it sort of spread, and I, I would spend time in 
I would, my break times, I'd be in the teacher bases, selling them scarves and things like that. And it was just, from that moment on, I thought, even one of my teachers said, he went, every time I look at you, Dean, you look so busy. He says, but you're just, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing there. He says, but whatever, whatever you're going to do, you'll be a success at if you want to do it and stuff like that. He says, academically, it's just not for you. Uh-huh. And, um, and that was sort of the way that I was, I, you know, from about third year onwards, I wanted to leave to go out and work and earn money and go and buy nice things and, and work towards stuff. And mm-hmm. end of fourth year, I stayed on to fifth year because I didn't have a job and I was sort of one of the, the, the sort of crossover where I was 15 going into fifth year. And um, the year head said, look, Dean, you don't really want to be here, son. You know, find yourself a job, get yourself out there. You know, and he, he was brilliant, actually. And I've still to this day, Mr. Reed was probably one of the best, uh, one of the best at the school. And he went, look, school's not for everyone and it's not the be all and end all day mm. he said i know when you first came here in, in first year we told you it is <laughs> but it's really not mm-hmm. you know you've got skills and attributes that are going to fit you well within um the employment sector yeah. you know go out and go out and f- sort of fill your boots and um i think the first job i got was um jgb sports and it was literally just i, I, I walked out of the school that day and i thought i can't go home until i've got a job so I went to every single shop that I could think of and just walked in and says, have you got any jobs going? Have you got any jobs going? And before I got home, I had a job. <laughs> and so I went home to my mum and I said, like, I've got good news and bad news. She says, right, right, what's the bad news? I said, well, the bad news, I've left school. And my mum was very, she, she, I think she really liked that my sister went to uni and it was a pride thing. And mm-hmm. from how she grew up that she never got the chance to go to university or anything like that. It was quite a... For her, it was seen as a prestigious thing, whereas I yeah. couldn't think of anything worse. Mm-hmm. I said, well, the good news is I've got a job. And uh, and that was that. So I started working in JGB Sports. And again, loved it. You know, you were, I was earning more money, spending it quicker than I got it. Um, <laughs> but loving it. And um, it, was, it was shocking pay. I'm sure I was on something like £2.15 an hour or something. And I got taxed on it. So, you know, you're, you're looking, I was walking at like one ninety-five an hour or something like that. And I always remember my boss at the time, you know, mocking me when he, he got my pay because he used to pay you cash at the end of the at the end of the week, yeah. and he would say things like, "Dean, I, I, I spend your wages on a night out." I was like, "Well, so do I." <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it was bad. But then, the, probably the, the turning point for me was um, one of my friends was doing um, leaflet dropping for Living Design, and he went, "Oh, they've got a call centre, Dean. I'm going to go in and do the telesales." I think it was like seven pound an hour or something. I was like, "What? That's like..." I would get my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> That's loads. <laughs> but by the time the two of us stopped shaking, we, we ran right down. And um, I got the job. I don't think he did. And started doing the telesales and loved it. It was you were the most hated person in the world when you phone people talking yeah. about double glazing. But it was where I met probably a guy that had a massive influence on me as a as a person. Is how I how I worked and, and taught me so much was a guy called Mark Rowley and he was the sales manager for the double glazing team and I always remember this because he would you, you would you would get a lead and then pass it on and my ones were pretty always were pretty good and he eventually said listen why don't you work for me he says and the leads will come to me I'll start getting the salesman to take you out we'll teach you up and train you up and stuff and I was like brilliant mm-hmm. so I've done that and he he pretty much took me from about the age of 15 16 
up to 19 um, and we went through different companies. Living Design, Safe Heat, uh, Farley's, oh, I can't even remember some of the other ones. It was all home improvements and he, he took me, wherever he went, he took me as well and it was, it was brilliant. And watching him, he was, he was an unbelievable salesman. But not just that, just the way that he carried himself, how he how he talked and interacted with people. I watched everything and just soaked it all in. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly I learnt probably more off of him career-wise than anybody else I've worked with. Um, I'm quite a spontaneous person. So I was sitting one night and I've, I'd, I've done every, I'd, I'd pretty much done every role within Double Glazing and places were shutting down every five minutes and it was just starting to, it was starting to really come to the end of its um, attraction for me mm -hmm. and uh, even flicking through the evening news and uh, my dad says oh look there's that casino uh, looking for staff now being a being a young guy with fake ID to get out and go go to pubs and clubs and town and stuff you would often end up in the casino because at the time they'd done free sandwiches so me and my friends were like you know it was like finding money like Oh, we can. We don't need to keep a fiver for a kebab. We can. Go, we can go for a sandwich. <laughs> we're like, yeah, it's, it's for nothing, <laughs> really. <laughs> so we used, we used to go to the Martel Casino in Newington, and um, that's who was hiring. So I thought, I'm going to go for a job. I'm going to be a croupier, <laughs> and I went and got interviewed. I got the job, yeah. and um, you do, you've got to do a, a, a full training school. I think about three months or four months. Then you got to apply for your your gaming license. So it takes about six months before you get onto one of the tables. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, we used to get called lumpies. That's what your term was when you were a, a trainee. And um, you'd always get a bit of stick and stuff. And I said, oh, I, would, I would love to work in London. And one of the one of the managers was like, oh, no chance, you're nowhere near good enough. I was like, oh, is that right? <laughs> so I hadn't even, I hadn't even, <laughs> I hadn't even worked in Edinburgh properly. And uh, I applied for a job in London. And the way that I worked in London is you had to go down to an agency and um, they would check how good you are as a dealer. They would like play against you and stuff and then to offer you whatever job mm -hmm. they felt was, was good for you. Confidence, a bit of arrogance, a bit of, I, I'm not accepting somebody telling me I'm not good enough or something. Yeah. Um, so I went down to London and uh, got offered the job in any casino. I think they, they were they were an agency for about 10 casinos and I was like, listen, all 10 of them, all, you're good enough for all 10. So that's, I thought so. <laughs> and so I, I, I picked one and I went back and at 19 I, I moved into London and it was um, brilliant. It was, again, when you're, you're, you're dealing with people um, in the casinos was, was quite sad at times because the, I always, this always sticks in my mind. There was a woman, she came in one night and she was a lovely woman, lovely looking, really smart, really pleasant, really nice. She was quite successful, as I believed. And she came in, it was just a, oh, just a bit fun, having something to eat. And then she came in more often for bites to eat and then she stopped having meals and just coming in and playing the casino. And mm -hmm. gradually over a, a space of maybe a year, 18 months, she had lost her businesses and she was coming in and it was just horrific. Mm -hmm. um, so you learnt to, to deal with people and see people at their worst. And you as a person, whether it be, you know, as a, even as a crouper, you're a salesman having to be able to to deal with the, the sort of emotions and that the, the, at quite a high and intense moments. Yeah, yeah. Taught, taught me so much with, deal, with regards to, again, with, with dealing with people socially um, and professionally. So mm -hmm. it was, again, it was a, from that, it was an incredible uh, journey um, learning-wise. Yes. Um, 
and I, I, again, I do believe to where I am today, all these wee things all taught me things that, that I've been able to use. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed the casinos. From the, from the casinos again, I went into, I got done a bit more retail and then went into financial services. Mm -hmm. um, financial services is probably where I found myself the most and, and I, I thrived there. Um, I became a, an area manager with Standard Life and they're um, dealing with mortgage brokers. And it was great, you know, I was wheeling and dealing, so that side of my nature from the, you know, working at the, the, the shows and the amusements yeah. to, to flogging the scarves and, <laughs> and all of that sort of nonsense. So it, it, all, it all just ticked the boxes for me. Um, we would get people, we'd have the modules broker would contact myself and say, this is what I've got, can you do it? And we'd go to the underwriters and we'd wheel and deal with the underwriters and, and get the mortgage approved and stuff like that. And it was, it was great, I think, for me, being quite a spontaneous person, but quite driven as well. Mm -hmm. um, I I had goals, uh, you know, within positions within Standard Life that I wanted to grow to, targets with financial wise, material, you know, material objects and things like that. Same as everybody, I want a, a nice house, I want a nice watch, shoes, whatever it might be. Um, and I achieved quite a lot with Standard Life. Um, financially wise, it was probably pretty was pretty was up there we we the, the best sort of earnings that I'd had. Mm -hmm. Um credit crunch hit, I moved on to a, to become a national manager for a, an independent financial advice company which was brilliant. Much more money, more responsibility and it was great. I was travelling a lot. Um kinda like you watch that kitchen nightmares with Gordon Ramsay, that's kinda what the job was like a little bit. <laughs> so I'd go into an office and be like Jesus. I have to tell them that they were rubbish and fix what they were doing wrong and stuff like that. And it was hard, but it was it yeah. was good as well. Uh -huh. um, from that, yeah, again, you know, the credit crunch, it, it obliterated most mm -hmm. IFAs. Mm -hmm. um, and I came back and I started working with British Gas okay. for my sins. And um, <laughs> done, yeah, door-to-door -door salesman with, with British Gas as well. So it was, there was always that face-to-face -face element. There was always that, whether it be a bit of sales, a bit of coaching, a bit of customer service, all of that. Yeah. And it all just, it, it came kind of naturally. So it wasn't really a difficult, it wasn't a, it wasn't a challenge. It wasn't very, very difficult. Um, and I think that's probably what's kept me so happy at work is because the things that I do within my job, I, I, I find it dead easy and natural. Mm -hmm. So it's not really hard work. It's not something that you dread going into. Mm -hmm. um, Ended British Gas um, was obviously, I found out I was diagnosed with MS. Yeah, yeah, of course. So that would have been in 2012. Yeah. Yeah, so so how did you um, find that out? What was the, how did it originally get diagnosed? Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, my girlfriend at the time, I wear glasses for seeing at distance, mm -hmm. but I never ever wore them and I'd, I'd lost them and not got a pair, so she'd been at me for ages. Go and get your eyes tested, go and get glasses, get your eyes constantly. As a typical man, <laughs> there was always something else yeah. that I wanted to do. There was always something something else I'd rather be doing, something else more important I'd rather be doing other than go and get my eyes tested and, and getting a new set of glasses. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually gave up and went in and got them. And literally, I, you know, I'm, I'm also, I obviously have said some quite spontaneous. I'm probably the easiest person to sell to <laughs> as well. Because I went in and I bought like, not just one pair, I bought like two pairs 
I got the the coating and the, I got everything. It's all, <laughs> all all singing and dancing. <laughs> About three hundred and fifty quid I spent, and literally four or five days later, I was playing five aside football, and um, my right eye started getting really blurry and kind of itchy and sore, and I thought oh, I've got something in it, and um, so I poured water in my eye, tried to rinse it, and um, it just it was kind of like my eye was steaming up. But I noticed I, I tried to put my foot out to stop the ball and it went like under me. And I'm going like, how did that happen? So obviously like depth per, uh, perceptive was gone. Yeah. Um, I was trying to kick the ball and I was missing it. And I was like, well, this isn't right. Um, never never really finished the game. Went home, said, oh, my eyes went really, really funny. My girlfriend, get it checked, get it checked. And I'm like, no, I'll be fine. A couple of days went by and it was starting to get really sore. So when I would look in certain directions, I'd be like, this is really, really hurting me. Mm-hmm. So I went to the doctors to start with. The doctor's like, I think you've got hay fever. Gave me some antihistamine. Obviously it done nothing. So usual as a man, you know, let's go and blame someone. So I went back <laughs> to Specsavers and I was like, listen, you've you've knackered my eyes with these <laughs> with these glasses. You know, my, my eyes were my eyes were fine. You know, and he's he's had a look and he's like, Dean, I'm sorry, but it's uh, I think it's something called optical neuritis. Now I went and seen him on a Saturday at like tea time. He's like, just wait here and I'm going to go and phone the eye pavilion. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is kind of serious. I mm. was thinking he's put the wrong bit of glass in my, my glasses. but And he came back and says, Dean, I'm sorry, they can't see you tomorrow, but they're going to see you first thing on Monday morning. And I was like, whoa, okay, listen, what's, what's, this, what's going on? Oh, no, no, listen, I don't want you to panic. It's a uh, your optic nerves um, inflamed possibly, um, but they'll they'll check it out and they'll and I was like right okay, so I went Monday morning went to the eye pavilion, and uh, they put drops in it and checked it and stuff and went yeah yeah, we think it's optical neuritis. Mm-hmm. Um, come back in four weeks it'll probably have gone away. Now at this point I'm googling what optical yeah, what yeah. can cause optical neuritis and MS was one of them. There was loads of other things. Obviously when I put the symptoms and what I was feeling. Um, you know the world's worst tumors, motor neurons, a hundred and one different things. So mm-hmm. I was like, "Listen, come on, doc, level with me. What 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 could it be?" He went, "Well, he says it could be. He says if it's a growth behind your eye, um, likelihood is that if it, even if it is operable, which a lot of times it's not, if it is, you'll lose your eye. Um, but we don't know if it is that. So we don't. You know, we were not saying it is that. Um, if it's MS, it could be the beginning of MS. It could be motor neurons. It could be." I think a virus. It could it could just be a, a bug. It could be an a, a, you know an infection in your eye, something like that. So like, okay, I was like, so out of the worst, I thought I'll take MS. In my head, you know, try, trying to sort of yeah the the, the sort of person I'm, it's kind of like a rather than trying to avoid something, it's right. Okay, let me think of what I can deal with, and let's let's give it a a doing. Let's mm-hmm. give it a let's give it a go. Yeah. And I thought right, okay, if it's MS, then. That's a sore one. If it's the other ones, it's it's worse. So out 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 of the three bad ones that I thought motor neurons, um, a growth or a tumour of some sort or mm-hmm. MS, I thought I could deal with MS. So we go back four weeks later and my eyes got a lot worse. Um, and he's like, listen, we're not going to mess about. We're sending you for an MRI. So I started to get a bit worried with that because obviously normally optical neuritis comes on bad and gets better. Mm-hmm. Doesn't come on and then get worse. So they were quite sort of perturbed about that yeah and um so we went 
got the MRI, um, and I, I said at the time to the, the guy from the, the, the consultant at the Hyperbogan, I said, look, I don't want a letter off you saying, come to an appointment, and I've got to wait two weeks before I can see you. Mm-hmm. When you get the result, I don't need an appointment. Just phone me and just hit me with it. I says, and hit me with it in a sports analogy. And he was like, what? I say, seriously, I don't want any stupid, you know, stats or figures or yeah. sob story from you. Just hit me, hit me hard, give me it in a sports analogy, make it easy, and I'll, I'll, that's what I want. He's like, right, okay, fair enough. So I was doing a, at the time, I was doing a part-time uh, working at Comet, just in between things. And he, uh, he phoned me up and, at work, and he's like, right, Dean, it's, I can't even remember his name now, the consultant from the Hyperbone. He's like, remember you told me that you wanted it in a sports analogy? I said, yeah, hit me. He's like, okay, and the Olympics was on. He's like, well, you, just, you, you see that Mo Farah? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, you've got more chance of beating him for the gold medal uh, in 100 metres than you have of not having MS. I was like, sound, thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. So uh, that was, um, you, tell wow. people, you, you tell people, and they're like, man, that's, but that's what I wanted. I didn't want any. I don't want any sympathy. I don't want somebody saying, "I'm sorry to tell you, didn't it?" Blah blah blah. I don't want it to be like that. I just yeah. want it told. Uh-huh. I want to understand it. Yeah. I didn't want told. Listen, Dean, we reckon you've got a forty percent chance of an MS. Blah, blah, yeah. I want to just listen. Just give me your opinion. The give facts, me. Aye, yeah. Give me it and, and let's just get on with it. So I was sent an appointment, and at that point, it was hard to take. You know, uh-huh. you're like. It's it's pretty it's pretty crap and my only previous experience of MS was my old school teacher Mr Pratt who didn't look the best if mm. I'm being honest didn't he didn't look great he was a he was a lovely man um, really funny but you know his 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 walking was wasn't great and then ultimately I seen him in a wheelchair as well so I seen the deterioration in him very quickly and um, so that's that's as soon as as soon as the doctors told me that that's what I'm, I'm picturing myself like you know I'm picturing myself being like this really frail mm-hmm. looking man and, and it was uh, terrifying and um, but there's always that there was always that element of well maybe they're wrong so I got the letter through and it just said the Western General Neurological Department I was like ah well if I was definitely MS they would have sent me to the MS unit so they've not done that so that's good mm-hmm. and here I walk in and it's actually signposted up MS unit or whatever mm. it was. I said, like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, nightmare. Yeah. And there was a lot of people in the waiting room. They were really, there was in chairs. And I thought, this is, this is a nightmare. And then I walked into the, into the, 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 the room with the consultant, Belinda Weller, who's still my consultant today. And meeting her probably did, in fact, 100% changed my life because she was so positive and she was so happy. Mm-hmm. And do you know what, sometimes you'll just meet someone and you're just like, ah, she's, 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 she's mine. Do you know what I mean? Whether it be a consultant or a, I don't know, a, a roofer or whoever it might be, no, mm. that, that's that, that person they do for me. Yeah. And um, she just, she was great. She was like, listen, Dean, this is what I'm gonna do for you. Um, this is what we're gonna do together blah 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 and she went through everything and um, you're going to be alright we're going to be alright and I was like and I didn't cry I didn't I didn't you know I wasn't it wasn't like a huge emotional 
mm-hmm. moment at that time or that, but I just felt right, good. Now we're now now we know what we're dealing with. Um, at that point, though, it was still very much suspected. Mm-hmm. They've got to do another another test to show multiple scars, which is what MS does to you. It's, it, it. It damages the the coating around the nerves. Yeah, I was going to say. So, if if you were having to explain MS to somebody that knew nothing about it, how would you break it down? I kind of say um, the best description. If you get an iPhone charging cable, yeah. And you see it nine times out of ten, they always end up bursting and fraying at the edge. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine that white coating around the wires is called myelin. That's like a fatty substance that covers your nerves and insulates them. All the wires inside are your nerves. So if you can imagine, that's one end's going from your brain, another end's going to, let's just say, your calf. Mm-hmm. Now at the very end where it's all frayed, the signal's still getting through. Like your phone, if you wiggle it a little bit, it'll still charge. So it's still getting through. Over time, however because of the damage of that protective layer, mm-hmm. the signal eventually stops going. Mm-hmm. And when it stops going, it breaks. And that's what, that bit of signal that's going from your brain to tell your calf muscle to contract or move or whatever to help you walk, when that s- signal stops going there, the muscle eventually wastes away. So that's kind of an easy way without going into far too much detail. Of, yes, of yeah. sh- it's a good visual as well. If you look, if you look at it and, and, and start to, to look at the cable and understand it a little bit, you're like, oh, right, okay, that makes makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's good, but that way. But yeah, there's a million other symptoms, but that's that's the yeah. best way to, for me anyway to describe it. That's what what does the damage. So we um, meeting Belinda was I definitely was life changing because it, it gave me, I guess, kind of like your confidence back mm-hmm. because. You've got you're faced with so much uncertainty with MS. Mm-hmm. The fact that it can come on at any time, it can attack you in any way. It can attack your eyes, your voice, your head, your breathing, your your legs, hands, everything. So there's that uncertainty of you know I could wake up tomorrow and not be able to walk. Mm. Um, and so when you're 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 facing that, you're, it is a fight, it is a battle, and you you need to have that faith and belief and confidence in the person that's in charge of your um, your health and well-being. Yeah. You've got to be able to buy into them and, and just within seconds I bought, bought into Belinda. Mm-hmm. And um, the funny thing was, that the first thing she says is, we're just going to get you a little lumbar puncture. And I says, no, we're not going to be doing one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've had one of them. No, they're not a good one. Yeah. I was playing rugby and collapsed and had to go to the hospital. And they thought I'd had a, an aneurysm, so they, they'd done a, a lumbar puncture. No, not a good, not a good experience. So mm. we had a laugh and a joke about it, and they we agreed that just to get another MRI. <laughs> so from that point on, I was, I was, and you know, I loved her, and I was like, yeah. And it's great. We now have a, a, a have a good relationship with Belinda. That I, I missed one of my appointments once, and she tweeted me. I was looking forward to seeing you today, Dean. <laughs> you hope you're okay. And I was like, you know what, for all the stick that the NHS gets, uh-huh. and I've had loads of, loads of offers and opportunities that papers and the news and things like that have always wanted me to to almost slag the NHS off. Mm. Because they seem to, they would rather put me in front of a camera or, or interview me slating the NHS rather than standing there and going, well actually, do you know what, I think it's pretty good, I, I like it. You know, they've done well by me, mm-hmm. they try their best, yeah it's not perfect, but... I can't, 
from my point of view, I can't fault the NHS for, for any of my care. Mm. It's been brilliant the entire time, whether that be because... Uh, I, I, no, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even want to, to, to make that sort of assumption that it's because I've got a bit of a following and, and, and stuff like that through the charity stuff because she was fantastic for day one. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd be doing her a disservice by saying it's that. I don't think it's that. I just think um, she's, she's for me, the, my consultant is, is the best. Um, and my experience of the, the NHS has always been pretty good. Yeah. So I can't really complain with that. It's, it's maybe a sad state of our society that the media would rather find a negative story to to bash the NHS rather than one that supports it. Exactly. That is a real shame. But it's great to hear. You know, it's really good to hear. Listen, I think it's I think when you're when you're dealing with something like MS it's it is a lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's not I'm not gonna outgrow this, I'm not gonna cure it. And I, I came to the I came to the, the probably the understanding or the realisation of that not right away but relatively quickly that I'm not running, I can't run away from this. I can't hide from it. And I have to accept and embrace what what it's capable of doing to me. And I have to accept and embrace that I'm going to be all right with that. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be hard? Yeah. Am I, am I going to be, is it going to be challenging days? Yeah, definitely. Could there be times in the future that I look back and go, you had no idea how bad this could get. Do you know what I mean? And go, so when I'm sitting here saying I, I, I'm okay with that, I might not be. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, you can only really hope to have the strength and the, the courage that you see in others when you face the same sort of difficulties. And I, I meet people very regularly that are really, really, really badly affected by MS, whether it be, you know, they can't talk properly now, they, they can't feed themselves, they can't wash themselves, and it's heartbreaking. And I've mm. seen it in people, deterioration in people that, that I've known that were, were pretty good when I first met them and in the last four years have deteriorated now where they've got full-time carers and things and it's mm. it, it, it's it is hard but yeah. you know what you meet these people and they've got a smile on their face and they're happy mm-hmm. and it makes you realize that well actually do you know what you've just got to keep fighting and that's um when I won the, the evening news award thing I made reference to my my ex-girlfriend's mum who had uh, passed away with cancer, and um, and I can remember that. I mean, she was she was going through chemo. She had to wear big mitts because her hands were so sensitive. And I'd get up in the morning. She'd iron my shirt for me for work, and I'd feel so embarrassed that she'd done it. But she was just hard as nails. Yeah. And f- you know, again, you, I talk about Mark Rowley learning a lot. I learned a lot from from sort of Eileen as well. And the, the fact that you can always still just get back up, and you can keep fighting. And even when you know her diagnosis was terminal, you know she's just she just kept going. Um, and even you know even talking about inspirations as well, my own mother, um, she had an aneurysm and she had to go in and get you know brain surgery. And literally she came to and all she took as painkillers was paracetamol. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and literally she came out of surgery and she looked like the elephant woman. And her eyes were closing and stuff, and she was like, right, just get home, I want to watch Big Brother. I was like, is this for real? Yeah. So, it's it's kind of one of those where at times you want to feel sorry for yourself and you want to, you know, roll up and hide in a corner and stuff, but 
fortunately, probably for me, is that I've been surrounded with people that have never done that. Mm-hmm. And I'm surrounded with friends that won't let me do that either. Yeah. Um, which is which is great. So I've got some I've got some lovely friends that like probably my best mate Philip, the most lovely, supportive guy you could ever ask for is a is a best mate, you know, always there, all you know, just brilliant. And then the other side of things I've got a, a, another best mate, Kenny, former boxer who's rough as a bag of spanners, who <laughs> will literally give me zero sympathy whatsoever. But it's brilliant. It's it's, it's great because I know that when I know who to phone when I want a, when I want a, a bit of a, an arm round me, and I know yeah. who to phone when I need to kick up the backside. And yeah, yeah. It's um, but what's funny is they both come from the same place. They both the 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 advice, the emotions, the support come from a, a good friendship, a good basis. And I remember going to see my consultant, and I took Kenny, the big rough, tough boxer. And um, we were looking at my brain scan, and um, it killed me for t- for telling the story. So <laughs> the two of us are sitting there with the consultant, and she sh- she's showing the basically what happens with the MS is it shows scars on your brain, and also on your your spine. So she's showing me the scars on my brain. She went, oh, there's a new one there, and there's a new one there, and blah 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 blah. And I was like, oh man, that's that's so cool. You know, not many people get to see their brain, and I was like, man, that's so cool. I was like, Kenny, look, and he's like. It's just so real. It's so real. And he's, and he's crying. I was like, what's, what's, what's the matter? Well, I make fun of you and stuff, and it's real. Because you can't see it. You know, MS yeah. is an invisible illness. You can't see it. Yeah. And he's in fuzzy tears, and I was poorless. So you ever tell anybody about this again, and I will wreck you. <laughs> and he's wiping tears away from his face. <laughs> but um, we've got that on camera. Well, we've got that camera, so yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, he's, it is. It's one of those things that when I, I got asked recently, you know, what's life like with MS? And I think, uh-huh. well, it's been pretty awesome, if I'm being honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's been, there's been some horrific times, really, yeah. really horrific times. But when you put it all together in the last four and a half years, I look back and go, "Really, I've I've, I've done that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. That's pretty good." Yeah, there's there's things that I've failed at. There's things I've done wrong, mistakes I've made, hard times. But when you look at it in the bigger picture, I'm thinking, I can't complain. I really, I'd, I'd, I'd be embarrassed to complain. Mm. Um, there's, there's, there's probably a number of things that you've done because of it that you wouldn't have ever considered doing prior to it. Um, you know, we were talking earlier and you said, you know, run a marathon, you wouldn't even run a bath, you know. <laughs> no, so it, it would be great to hear about some of the, the high points and some of the challenges that you've done and, and really, I suppose, why you decided to take them on. Yeah. Well, I remember um, after, after I'd, I'd gone and met Belinda, I felt great. And then a few things happened personally, and I just started to feel a bit, a bit crap. And I was, not, um, not having serious problems, but I was, I was probably the, the beginning of depression and not real, not knowing what it was. So I was, you know, I'd go out for a pint and not know when to come home. Um, I'd eat my weight and whatever. Do you know what I mean? I just, just really doing everything to excess. Mm-hmm. Going shopping instead of buying one, you know, one pair of jeans, I'd buy ten. Just, you know, trying to fill, trying to fill this void in, in, in myself that was, 
that was kind of lost and kind of sad and and hurting and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. and this was whilst I'd I'd gone and had my second MRI and I was waiting on the results of that. So I kind of knew I've got MS. I'm just waiting on the letter. And the letter came through the door on a Wednesday, and it said, "Dear, dear Dean, uh, we have to diagnosed you with remitting relapse and multiple sclerosis. Uh, we will see you again in six months. If you have any problems, give us a shout." Essentially, and I was like, "Right, okay. What do I do? What do I do now?" Mm. And um, I thought, "Right, I can't have this. You know, I'd, I'd been sitting talking to." Um, Kenny and I says I just didn't know what to do. He says, "Well, we're just going to have to give it a doing." And I was like, "Well, ah, you're you're right." You know, if she says if somebody was you know somebody was breaking into your house and was was going to hurt you and do bad to you, you you'd get up and give them a doing. So let's just give MS a doing. I says, "Right, I like the sound of that." So on the day I got the letter, I went online and registered to do the Great Edinburgh Run, and now. You can imagine, you know, this is a Wednesday. Nobody knew. Nobody knew I'd, I'd just been diagnosed with MS. Um, and uh, so I signed up for the, I think it was a Saturday, was the run. No training whatsoever. I'm going to do it. And what I'm going to do is as soon as I cross that finish line, I'm leaving all the negative feelings. I'm leaving all the crap behind me. And I'm going to go from that first step after that finish line is me taking my life back. And that's how I, in my head, that's how I was telling myself, and that's what I'm going to do. And um, one of my cousins was um, running in memory of an auntie had passed away. And I'm a Hibs fan, she's a Hearts fan. So we agreed that for a bit of publicity, I'd wear a Hearts shirt with 5-1. <laughs> and she'd wear a Hibs shirt with 7 nothing, with Murray on the back, because Ian Murray was a footballer that she particularly didn't like. And I quite liked Ian Murray. I, I know him, so he's quite a nice guy. <laughs> So I made sure that her, his name had to go on the back of her shirt. And we'd done that. And the, the local paper, even the news, done a wee story on it. Um, and I'd done a just given and just went, by the way, for those that don't know, just been recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I've decided that I'm going to take my life back. And I'm going to do this, this and this. And um, done it. And I think I raised about, about 900 quid, a thousand pounds for a 10k. Which was which is huge, yeah. um, because people were people know me as, as a big unit that's never <laughs> you know lucky to run a bath, never mind ten k's, <laughs> and they were like, I remember one of my mates said, you'll never be able to do that. I was like, well, we'll see, and we done it, and they all came out. Loads of my friends came out to support me. It was brilliant, great, great day, um, and then I booked in another one, another ten k, which was the. Do, 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 let me think. This was the British Heart Foundation's 10k. Mm-hmm. So my mate Kenny was boxing on on the the Saturday night in Sheffield. So I went down to Sheffield to watch his fight. He won he won the British title. I came straight back on the bus that night. Got home about half five in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and I had to be at Arthur's seat for nine to do the 10k for the for that. And I done that one. And, uh, and like, bec- but you've presumably not done a significant amount of training or running. How did your body react to it? How were you feeling? It kind of fell out with me. <laughs> kind of was like, my legs were like, we're not speaking to you <laughs> until at least Wednesday, Thursday. Don't even think about asking us to do anything. Jeez. And it was, it was sore, but 
the adrenaline and the pride and, and all of those feelings, the endorphins or whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. took over that. And it was like, do you know what? I'm just doing it and I'm enjoying it and it's great. And uh, what's funny looking back now is that I thought 10K was a lot. So I done so I done the two 10Ks and then I done the, the Glasgow uh, Movember run, which was just hilarious. And I, I, me and my girlfriend had been out the night before, and she was she was pretty drunk and I wasn't I wasn't really. And um, so I we went. She went home and I went home. And I said, right, I'll go through first. And she's like, right. I'll, I said it'll take me about an hour and fifteen, an hour and twenty minutes to do the 10K. So right, okay. So I get there and I'm running a little bit late. And because it's my, my eyes that had played up with MS, my sight wasn't great. At this point now, I'm a veteran. You know, this is my third 10K. I'm like, I know what I'm doing now. So I rock up to the end of the, just as they're, just as they're setting off. And what I'd started to do now was to pick a big unit. So I'd look for something <laughs> a similar build to me and be like, as long as I beat him or her, I'm happy. As long as I get past them, I'm happy. So I seen this really, really big guy at the front. I thought he'll do for me. <laughs> Massive, much bigger. I'm going to tank him. And so the the, the gun or whatever, the klaxon or whatever, it goes off. And here, this guy's quite quick. And I'm like, he can shift. <laughs> so in my in my head, I'm going, he's not going, to, he's not keeping this pace up. I haven't even had a chance to put my headphones in. Like, a, I'll get them in once he stops. He keeps going, he keeps going. I'm like, nah, there's no way. So in my head, I'm telling myself. Dean, this is your MS. This is your MS stopping you. This is, you know, so it was quite an emotional sort of battle. You know, psychologically, I'm going, but but, but I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I can't believe that. Not realising 1K, 2K, 3K, 4 and we're getting through the distance. And, and all I keep can keep thinking about is, I can't stop because if I stop, I might never be able to start again. Yeah. And, you know, four, five, six. And... The whole time I'm thinking, this is my MS, I can't believe it. And you're crying a little bit and stuff and thinking, I can't believe this is, it's 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 had an impact on me so quickly. Because the other two, I'd coasted, I'd just gone really slow, just slow jogs. So in my head, I'm, you know, I don't realise I'm going quicker than what I'm, than what I've done previously. Yeah. I keep going. And um, I get what I thought was a stitch and I'm, I'm like, oh man, I'm pushing it back into my stomach. Turned out later on it was a hernia, <laughs> not a stitch. And um, I crossed the finish line and I'm, I'm, I can barely talk, I can barely see, I'm sick, um, horrific. And I go looking for this big unit because I'm like, how do you know speak? Just to see him. Yeah. And as I find him, he's, he's just peeling off the sumo suit that he was wearing underneath a shell suit for, ch for charity. <laughs> and I just thought the overwhelming of, I've just been conned. <laughs> I've just been, I've just been robbed. I've just been, I've just killed uh. myself. And and he had the most beautiful set of abs I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, <laughs> so I must have looked, I must have looked so weird because <laughs> I'm sitting looking at him and I've got puke and everything all down me. And I'm looking at these abs and he's he's got the little bits that curved down and that. And I'm like, he's never seen a bit of toast in his life. <laughs> and at, at least ten, he's not seen a bit of toast in ten years. No chance. And. Uh, and he's like, are you alright? Big man. <laughs> I was like, I thought you were a big unit, like me. And he's like, oh. He's like, but he said, you've done well. He says, is that you just finished? I was like, mm-hmm. And I came 16th. And um, I can't remember the time, I think it was like about 47 minutes or 41 minutes. It was around about the 40-odd minute mark. 
and uh, I came 16th in the men's November run in 2012. Oh but I was in, my body went into shock. Like, literally, I, I could barely talk. I was just like, I was like a zombie for about two hours. But obviously, I, I've finished about half an hour quicker than what my girlfriend thought. So she's came and uh, I've phoned her. <laughs> we're kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street moment <laughs> on the phone. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, what's going on? She's like, I've had a stroke or something. And she's, and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I was late, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> crying and not being able to talk properly. And she's like, right, I'm going to take you for lunch to celebrate. And she was very proud and took me to Jamie's Italian. I couldn't speak. I couldn't even order my dinner. And um, <laughs> quaaludes. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. Later, later on that night, um, my hair now popped out again oh, in an inappropriate moment. And I'm like, it's alright. It's just my stitch. And I've jumped on my back and I'm like <laughs> and she's like, that's not a stitch. So it was back to the complaining at me for for not looking after myself. So it was, ah, it was good. It was. Um, after after the, the November, the next event was the New Year's Day triathlon. So that was a that was an experience because you walk up and you go into the Commonwealth Pool and it's all these guys in these like wetsuit things with their number written down their arm. You know they're going straight in the bike as soon as they come out the water. Mm. And I'm like, and I've rocked up with a pair of football shorts on to do the swim. And a towel and my outfit, <laughs> so I'm getting dried and maybe doing my hair and stuff after I've done the swim. But um, so we're do, everybody's by the pool and there's the, the compare guy, and uh, he's looking for. He's like, who's contestant number one? Now I've put my times down as I'm going to be hopeless at swimming. I'm going to be the hopeless at running. It's sort of the bike, and by the time it comes to the running, I'm going to be, you know, in no fit state. Yeah. So they've they've labelled me as number one because I've put the longest times. So I'm like, oh, I'm not believing this. Like, Want to speak to contestant number one? And I'm like, oh, no. And the guy can see it's me. You know, he's looking around and it's all athletes. <laughs> and it's like, it's like the John Smith's commercials. Remember the ones where they get the ball and boots out of the stuff? Yeah. And I'm standing there thinking, I've got a pair of football shorts on, standing out like a sore thumb. And he came over and he gave me a bit of, bit of stick. He's like, oh, where's your goggles? And I'm like, yeah, very funny. And, um, Gave him a bit of stick, we had a bit of banter and stuff like that. But what was funny was, at the end of the event, he was standing on the finish line because people from the, the MS centre that I was raising money for had come along and some of them were in wheelchairs and things like that. And when he learnt my story, when I, when, I see, when I met him at the finish line, he had tears in his eyes. He gave me a big cuddle and he said, I'm so, so uh, great, grateful that you've, you've done the event and I'm so proud to meet you. I said, oh, you know, easy mate, I need... Need a, I need a rest. <laughs> I need to lie down. But it was. It was. I mean, it was. Um, that was. That was probably the ten k's were breaking me in. I'd done the triathlon, which was different disciplines. It was. It was a challenge. Um, I remember thinking the swimming will be the worst. And um, I swam as fast as I could, and I got out. I was dizzy. I was like, oh my word, that was definitely the worst. I got changed. Got all my stuff on to keep me warm. And then I got out and onto the bike. And I'd hired a bike. And so I hadn't actually cycled on a street bike at all. I'd just... And it's very different on one of those little tyres. <laughs> and I was like, whoa! So we came out We came out the Commonwealth Pool. And you go down there, it just seems a little hill. 
Oh. But man, you shift on those bikes. <laughs> and I'm a big unit and the little tyres and I'm going, oh my word, what am I doing? What am, and, and the pedals, <laughs> uh, the, sorry, the saddle on your, your bum and stuff, I'm like, yeah. what are you thinking, Dean? You know, you have had that sort of moment of, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. But we've done it and got through it and it was great. It was it really enjoyed it. Um, if anybody thinks about doing a triathlon or a, do the one on New Year's Day. I don't know if it, it was on last year. Hopefully it'll still be on. It's well supported. I think about 250 people, 250 people, maybe 300 people do it. But it's a great day out. It's great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I've done a thing called the Mighty Deerstalker, which under no circumstances would I ever do again. It's the hardest, most most horrible experience in my life. It was horrific. Mm. You start at tea time and you run um, through mud, you go up a big hill, then you come down it and you think, that's me done, and they say, no, you've got another one to do. It's just horrible. It's just, and it's all done at night with a little head torch. There's no lights, mm-hmm. it's just brutal. And that's the hardest thing. I think if you if you can do the Mighty Deerstalker, a marathon is a doddle, an absolute doddle in comparison. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I actually feel sick when I think about oh, it. The mighty deer stalker, it was so bad. <laughs> oh, so you've done six marathons. Six, yeah, six full marathons, one half marathon, a few 10Ks, That's mighty incredible. deer stalker. Um, I picked a fight with the, the king of the gypsies. That's right, yeah. Um, thankfully, touch wood, <laughs> on the night he, he, he never turned up. So I stood in the, the ring and gave him a bit of cheek because he wasn't there and Thankfully, he's never heard that cheek, and <laughs> we'll just leave that one there. But, but no, it uh, was. Um, I'm good. I'm good friends with, with Kenny Anderson, who's gold medalist at Commonwealth Games, British mm. champion. Alex Arthur as well, former world. He won everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I often joke when I was at his house recently, and he's got all these titles and things like that. And I think you never really won much, did you, Alex? Just absolutely everything, and he did. He won <laughs> everything. Um, so yeah, I had, I had those two as my, my trainers, so I think as much as uh, he probably would have punched me into next week, <laughs> I think the thought of them training me was enough to say I can't win. It'd be like, if he if he beat me up, he'd yeah. be a bully. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and if I beat him, you know, how's he going to be able to charge somebody double price for their tarmacking? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> He's not going to get away with it. I would say, listen, we phoned the MS man. He says we're not paying. <laughs> So he was on a loser. He couldn't. He couldn't. He, 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 he couldn't yeah. win. So I, was, I read an article actually that was um, in the lead up to that that said, you know, this isn't a tickling match. No, you know, is it's, it? You're not. You're not holding back. No, it's. Um, we to be honest with you, right? Um, this this guy was. He was a. He was a big, big, handy man, but not in boxing. He he was in in bare knuckle fighting. Uh-huh. But this was going to be boxing. We were going to be wearing. You know, fourteen ounce gloves. Yeah, he wasn't going to have it all his own way. Um, you know, technically, I was I was sound, and technically, I I reckon I would have um, been fine. I know I joke about saying oh, I would have punched me the next week and stuff like that. We the bottom line was, you know, and and this is the point that I made was that Kenny and Alex are you know very very experienced. Yeah, and if for one minute they didn't believe that I was capable of surviving and doing well. Yeah. They would never have let me do it, and not only would they let me do it, they they said you you'll beat him. 
legitimately. You'll not, you might, you'll probably not knock him out, yeah. but you'll outbox him, and that was, um, and I think that's what he was worried about. <laughs> but we'll, we'll never know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll watch this, and he'll. I'll, I'll open my garden and open my curtains, and there'll be twenty caravans in my garden next week. <laughs> oh. I'd, I'd really like to um, speak to you about maybe some of the, um, the the harder times that you've been through with yeah. the MS. I mean, you, you've spoken, um, you know, we've spoken quite openly about some of the struggles that you've had and some of the mental health things, which, you know, obviously would would be a, a byproduct of, of the diagnosis. So if you can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we're looking probably about, what, two and a half years, three years ago, something like that. So the, 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 my partner at the time had split up, which was quite quite a bad breakup, to be fair. Um, and yeah, I found myself probably a bit lost. Um, I wouldn't say lonely, but certainly yeah, very very depressed. Um, I hadn't hadn't dealt with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I'd got my diagnosis, knew it was coming, and um, but never. As much as I thought I had dealt with it and processed it, I hadn't even scratched the surface. And um, I found myself really, really, really low. And, and you know, I ended up having to, to seek a bit of medical a bit of medical support at that. And that involved being uh, taken into hospital um, for a period of time that was just required. You know, I needed um, time for me. I needed time to um, sit back, I guess. And sort of look at, right, you've done amazing things in the short period. I'd done, I think at that point I'd done marathon, eh, all the other bits and bobs, the TV stuff, all of that had come and I'd done well with it all and um, raised a lot of money. From the outside looking in, I was absolutely perfect. I was doing great. Um, but at that point I was, an, I was, yeah, I was an absolute mess. You know, I didn't want to live. Um, I, th I thought, well, you know, there's no point. There's no point trying to work for a career because I've got MS and I'm not going to be able to work. There's no point in trying to start a new relationship because I've just been in one that which I loved and mm -hmm. um, I don't ever ever want to feel like this again. So I'm never, you know, it's kind of like burning yourself in the fire. I'm not be touching that fire again. Yeah. And you go through all of that, and it was um, it was horrific. But it's probably at the same time as the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, um, I got the I got the proper help and support that I needed. There was some family and friends that probably, I think now, looking back on it, will probably be quite ashamed of how, how they were. Um, but there was ones that were, the ones that mattered were there. And I think that's what got me through it. And I think, it changed. It's changed me as a person. My my perception of people in that arena or environment yeah. was very, very, very poor. It was very, ah, oh, you know, you'd look at them, and go, ah, oh, they're probably a junkie or whatever. Mm -hmm. And actually, I would, I would, I would say with a, a, a fair degree of certainty that any single person is capable of becoming um, one of these people that you see that you would perhaps call them a junkie or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Because mental health. It's such a fragile thing, mm -hmm. and it's not even just a case of what you're going through. It, it could be that you go for the treatment, and the treatment that you get is based on that nurse's perception of you. So, if, for example, um, 
the doctor or the consultant or whoever deems you to be aggressive or a pest, they might look at sedating you. Now, depending on what they use, that can have long-term effects on you. Yeah. You know, you'll see people that are walking about looking um, vacant and you know almost like zombies. I think that could so easily have been me. And it's a shame, you know, it's really, a and it, I think there's, there's, there's only so long that we certainly, in, in that um, area, that the, the people can say, oh, but the, the nurses are overworked and they've not got the time, and the consultants and things like that are too quick to force a medication down someone, they're too quick to say, this is what they need to take and, and force it in. Oh, if he's aggressive, right, we need to give him that to just calm him down. And I think a lot of, the, a lot of these issues and a lot of these guys that are suffering, if somebody was to take 10 minutes and sit and chat to them, yeah. the difference it would make would be incredible. Um, I go back and I'd, I've done talks now um, on, on mental health in, in hospitals and things like that, and even with consultants and stuff. And that's the feedback that I give them is that, do you know what, sometimes you need to just speak to people. Mm-hmm. It's not about what your perception is and, and medicate them on that perception. Learn a little bit about the person. You know, mm-hmm. I was probably, and again, they knew who, who I was when I went in um, because of the, the boxing thing and stuff like that. A couple of the the, the, the people knew me. Um, so I think that I was kind of, not a special case, but I think I definitely got treated a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. They knew obviously of the MS, they knew of the, the, the relationship breakup and stuff like that. So they were aware, of, they, they had a good understanding of my life right away. Yeah. Whereas I think if I'd gone in there very aggressive and and stuff like that, that would have maybe have taken that time to understand me, had I not had this rep, had, the, had I not had this little bit of mm-hmm. public persona that as a fundraiser and a good guy, would they have given me the benefit of the doubt? Would they yeah. have given me the time? I don't know, you, you never know, but um, I was, yeah, it was, it was an experience that in many respects was some of the funniest moments in my life, <laughs> but at the same time, some scary, yeah. scary stuff, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're meeting people that um, hear voices and talk to themselves and, you know, admittedly there was a couple of funny ones where the guy believed it was the reincarnation of Michael Jackson and that was just brilliant because <laughs> you became used to it. <laughs> so every now and again he would, he would jump up and do a, a spiral and like make a hee hee <laughs> and like grab his crotch and stuff and he's like, but he became immune to it because he would see it. So yeah. that made it even all the funnier <laughs> that he would do it and nobody would blink an eye because they're like, it's just Davy. <laughs> and I was like, brilliant. But I remember um, I, there was a few of them, they were all, they were all different, different guys and stuff, and I took them out to the cinema. And it was just one of the most bizarre experiences in my life. I took these guys out for pizza into the <laughs> cinema. And I just looked along the line, and I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> forget, forget marathons, forget this. This is, this is going to be, uh, it's like a visually imprinted in my brain for the rest of my life. Yeah. Looking along, we t- took them to the Dominion, the best cinema in Edinburgh, in my opinion. And I'm just looking, I'm going, I was like, what, what are you thinking, Nadine? <laughs> you know what I mean? You're, you're, you know, take a bit of time for yourself. No, let's let's take five or six guys that are, that are, that are seriously ill and let's let's take them for a laugh ever eat and a, a domino, a dominion mm. date. But it was, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was great, and I, it, it was. It's good that I can look back and laugh on it. 
Yes. It's good that I can look and I'm still here and I'm stronger because of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that anybody that is out there that is dealing with their demons or, or depression or any sort of mental health, talk about it. Don't be ashamed of it. I was I was very ashamed of it. Um, it was it was something I was scared to talk about, and um, eventually I done a blog about it. And as soon as I wrote that and printed it, I felt about twenty years younger. Mm. Like this weight had just come off my my shoulders, and my chest, and it was so it was so liberating to be actually be to to go. Do you know what? It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Um, Whereas I always felt that I had to be, had to have this bravado and this, this pers- you know, this this sort of laid off, um, not masculinity, but this 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 lady macho-ness that yeah, ah, no, nothing bothers me and stuff like that. And and to be honest, I think it probably helped me now within my my personal relationships now because I've dropped that element of me. You know, and mm-hmm. I always remember that my ex-partner said to me, you're never just you. There's always this persona about you that you've put on. To pre- and it, it was almost like a protective shell. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was right. And uh, although I never, I'll never ever admit that to her, but yeah, it was true. And I think going to the, going to the hospital and, and dealing with that, I've, I learned to, to drop that off for myself and mm-hmm. just be myself and just like, do you know what? Yeah, it's all right not to be all right, and it seems dead simple. But when you're when you're in that cocoon of how you're feeling and and feeling depressed and not wanting to not want to live anymore and yeah. fed up with life and fed up with everything, you just want to close the curtains and lock yourself in and hide. You you, be, you do become ashamed because you don't want to admit to people that that's what you've done. And but yeah, I would just anybody that's anybody that's that's still watching this. Um, it's okay not to be okay and it's okay to talk about it um, there's a lot of stuff I've got a friend that I met through all the fundraising he lost his daughter um, to suicide and and it's not until you start you meet somebody that, that's gone through that that you, you start to realise the impact of depression and what what it can the damage it can cause to these you know the, the people that, that are left behind mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I mean it's it's something that I'll always I'll always talk about uh-huh. because I think I'd be very very selfish if I if I went through this this whole experience um, and it's it's made me what I am today mm-hmm. or it's got me to where I am today. If I don't share that with someone else and let somebody else learn from that and and grow from that and develop from that, then I'm, what a selfish man I would be. And I'm not by any way, shape, or form trying to put myself out there that I'm a role model or I'm anything special and I genuinely never never have and I never ever will. I enjoy what I do, I have lots of fun doing what I do. I'm the first person to make fun of myself and I don't take anything too seriously now. But the one thing I do take seriously is is talking about your mental health and if you're not uh-huh. okay, speak about it. Um, and any stigma that's attached with that, it should be obliterated because I mean, I met uh, Trevor, and he lost his daughter. And the first time I met him, you could feel, you could feel his pain. Like literally, didn't even have to say a word. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he was like overly depressed or down or when he was talking, 
but he was he was happy and he was like, oh, it's lovely to meet you and your boys and stuff. But you could feel it, and I just and my heart breaks for him every time I think about him. Breaks my heart, and he he's in, what a, what a man he is. He's done countless marathons, ultra marathons. Um, he's just he's just an amazing man, just an mm. unbelievably amazing man, and um, he, he supports everything that I do, and I likewise for him. Um, and certainly, when you talk about what inspires me and what keeps me going, it's meeting, meeting something like like Trevor. You know, mm. he's probably going through the as a parent the worst pain imaginable, and um, he's so for me he's he's so strong. He's dedicated. He's he's and he's so kind to to share that with people mm-hmm. because it's such a intensely private. Thing. You know, he's grieving. He's grieving the loss of his his daughter, and he's and he's deciding that listen, I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to let other people learn from my pain, and to be able to do that is blows me away. Yeah, yeah. I get a wee bit emotional even thinking about yeah. him. But it's it's yeah. Dean, uh, I massively appreciate how honest you are and, and you know everything that you've spoken about so openly. Um, and I think that mental health is it's such a major thing, especially around young males who really, they, they allow um, the kind of, as you're talking about, the kind of bravado almost to get in the way of actually just speaking openly about how they feel. So it's such a fantastic message. And I you know, really thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like at this stage probably to, to delve a little bit into um, kind of purpose and success, um, two, two topics that I, I really, really enjoy um, speaking about. Um, and I'll be really looking forward to hearing kind of what you, what you have to say in, in response. So what, what do you feel is your purpose at the moment in life? Um, ask, the, ask the boys. I've got obviously three sons and I ask them you know you get these things on Facebook where it says what's my job what's my what makes me happy and get the mimic the responses and um, the youngest one came up with the best one which was I says what's my job it went to keep us safe and I was like wow you clever little bugger <laughs> you know and, um, and I guess my, my purpose in life is to is to show them better, mm-hmm. you know. The uh, the three boys haven't had it great. Um, they've not had the best start in life, not by any stretch of the imagination. And um, I believe my purpose is to show them that life can be better. And um, and I hope I think well to be honest, actually, I don't hope. I know that I've done I've done that so far. You know, my son Michael, he's, he's got to go inside Downing Street. You know, we've got invited out to number 10, we've been at the Houses of Parliament, we've been to see the First Minister. So these, these kids are, they're, they're probably their uh, perception of, of life and reality is probably pretty skew with just now. <laughs> but it's, I um, I always thought my, my, I never knew what I wanted to be when I got, when I got older. To a certain extent, even now, I'm still think I still got that mentality of what do I want to do when I'm big. I've not yet given up hope of playing for Hibs and scoring the winning goal in the cup <laughs> final, but I've got to be honest, I've not got long left. Ken, 
even, even, even stringing it out and saying, you know, well, Del Piero played to 40 or <laughs> nah, It's ship sails. Yeah, I think so. so <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I've not completely let go of that dream, but it's it's hanging by a thread. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, and I, I remember, I, I've, always, I've never, every job I've done, I've loved, I've, I've always enjoyed my work, but I've never felt that's what I was meant to do. I never felt, Oh, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. Uh-huh. But I do now. I do now when I, I finish a marathon or I, I, I do a talk or I, I write a, a blog um, and I get the feedback from people. And I go, this is what I was born to do. Everything that I've done in my life, the selling dodgy scarves, the doing the bingo numbers, the being a croupier in, in the casinos and all of it selling gas and electric doing all of it is all there's been little parts of every job that's built me into the the person I am today that allows me to have the set of skills that can sit with somebody that's severely depressed from Pilton to sitting with someone you know to sitting in number 10 down the street and being able to converse there, maybe not so successfully by, you know, we can maybe go into that later. <laughs> but then to sit in with the First Minister in, in the Parliament in Edinburgh. So I've learnt bits from every single job that's built me into this into this person. And I'm not perfect, I'm not great, and I, I make mistakes and I do things wrong. But I get far more feedback on things that I do well than things that I do wrong. Yeah. And I'm quite critical of myself as well. So I think what I'm doing now, which is, ch- I hope, changing the, the, the face of, of MS within my network, my, my social network, um, is working. Um, I know that from you know the people that I meet that are newly diagnosed, um, their families and things like that, tell that, you know, I've got thousands of messages from them saying, you know what a difference you've made to our lives. I'm making. I know I'm making a big impact, and that's not. It's, I'm always awake, I'm always quite sort of nervous about coming across arrogant, oh. but um, I know I know I'm making a positive impact to to many many people, and it's and it's it's brilliant. It's what when I wake up in the mornings and I'm in agony. It it makes me get my two feet and plant them on the floor and stand up. Um, and sometimes. That's a lot harder than than you would think, um, not just physically but mentally sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this was—I'm not a religious person, but certainly spiritual—and I think I kind of I kind of feel that everything happens for a reason, and I think everything in my life has happened to get me to this point, to where I am today. Um, and which is, you know, as I say, sitting here, I've done six marathons, <laughs> been invited to number 10, won awards, sp- speaking at loads of different events. And I think I've done all that in four and a bit years. Yeah. And I, I think there's no other, I, c- I can't come to any other conclusion because I'm not, I'm not the most intelligent person in the world. I'm not the most, um, I'm not the most ambitious or driven. I reckon I'm slightly, but I don't think I'm the, the most. Um, I think I probably, if I was more 
more driven and focused, I probably would have been more successful in different roles, which would have taken me away from this. I think everything that everything within my personality has driven me to this point, which is which is feels nice. Um, at this period of my life, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Um, I love my life. Everything's been same as everyone else. You know, you would you would love to have four or five holidays a year. You would love to be able to do this or do that or, or whatever you like. But generally, health-wise, is doing all right. Um, I have I spend good the quality time that I've got. I spend with good people and I enjoy that. My my purpose. is to, I hope, to show people not to give up. Mm -hmm. I'll try to obviously think think of a, a sort of concise answer to, but I would, I would yeah, I would say not give up. It would be my purpose to teach. From a selfish point of view, from my family, is to teach the boys that no matter how hard life is, mm -hmm. you can still go forward. You can still keep fighting and not give up. So I reckon that's my, my purpose at the moment. Brilliant. And and so how how do you think you would want to be remembered? What would you like your legacy to be? Um, I'd like my legacy to be that that guy that guy didn't half give MS a doing. <laughs> yeah. It's basic. It's basic as that. He was a great, you know. That that's with regards to my my sort of the the work and stuff that I do. I would I would I would love that for it to be he gave that a doing. Mm. What you know. Um, kind of like I mean I look at um, Gordon Aikman who passed away recently which is sad so sad actually and he was an amazing man and his, his he's changed I mean I could never never ever even come close to what he's what he's achieved what he's done was is just incredible um, and I was very very lucky I got to meet him a couple of times and he was just probably one of the nicest most humble and inspiring guys that you could ever hope to meet um, his legacy would be he's changed the lives of people with motor neurons in, in Scotland mm -hmm. um, and it, I've been nominated in this, the same category as him for awards and things like that so to even to be printed on the same page as him is, is a huge compliment and a massive honour um, but yeah, leg legacy wise, I would like to leave a, a lasting legacy with regards to the fundraising. Um, whether that be through, I've got a, a deal just now where somebody's designing a tartan just for me. <laughs> so it'll be a Dean versus MS tartan, um, and the plan would be to set that up as a as a as a as a tartan that people can hire and buy, and that proceeds from that, the profits from that will go straightly back into um, MS uh, charities, so whether it be research or into helping fund carers and, and stuff like that. So it might take, I, I, I anticipate that to be a slow burner, but that's great because that means in 30 years time, 40 years, 50 years, there'll still be a Dean versus MS tartan that could be yeah. contributing money to people living with MS. Um, I hope that I get five years, ten years down the road and I'm not still having to do marathons because, if I'm being honest, I don't like them. So <laughs> I'd like to have something in place that continues to raise money and raise awareness and does good work. 
without me having to yeah. drag myself around uh-huh. marathons and what have you. But yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> it's 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 a, a, a very very uh, good question because it makes you think in so many different levels. Yeah, what what you're asking there, and you've almost got to to try and sort of segment it and and make some sort of sense to rather than just sit here and, and waffle, which is what I feel like I'm doing the now. <laughs> but yeah, fr- certainly from fundraising side of things, I'd like to leave a lasting legacy that something that produces money without me having to physically do another marathon and without having to do stuff. And so that when I'm long gone and, and incapable, whether it be through illness or, or old, old age or, or pass away, that I know that there's money still going to be growing and that people are still going to be um, aware of who I was and what I did, and yeah. and that people benefit from it would be would be phenomenal. Um, I think also for uh, for the boys to have that as well is I hope that whenever they go into difficulties in life that they can go well. Listen, let's have a think about it. Is it as bad as getting MS and having three kids to look after and this and that and that? No, it's not really. So if if he could get through that and he done that 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 and that on top of that then we can deal with this no problem. Yeah. Because if he done it, we know what he's like. We lived with him. He's an idiot. We're better than him. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I want from him. I want them to look at that and go, well, if that idiot can do what he's done, this is no problem for us. And um, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed that they, they, they take that from it. Yeah, great answer. <laughs> How do you define success? Um, right now, I would probably say I'm incredibly successful because I'm happy, and I think that you don't you don't actually realise how big a success being happy is yeah. until you're being really unhappy. <laughs> and um, you know, you wake you wake up ev- I wake up every day and same as everybody else. Oh man, I've got the school run to do got work, I've got this, I've got that, I could, you know, but I'm happy, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying what I do, there's there's not many parts of my week that I don't enjoy, in fact, I can't think of anything, so from that point of view, I, I, I view that as me, I'm highly successful, because even the, the most material, um, materially sort of wealthy people might be happy, I know people that are that are very wealthy and miserable. Yeah. So you know the the material possessions don't don't make all that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I've had nice things uh, throughout my life, and I've not always been happy. But yeah, ha- success for me is happiness. I've had obviously elements of pardon me of success through for elements of success through awards. Marathon, a, a marathon medal is a success, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and it's different for me right now. My happiness is my busy, big, biggest success. The boys are happy that they're, they're in school. Uh, the oldest ones at college and things like that. He's working and stuff. So, you know, I sit back and look at the last two years because they only came to live with me two years ago, and go, what a journey. You know, in the last two years, we've done this together as a as a as a unit and as a family, and um, long may it continue. Touch wood, and yeah. as, as they say. 
Yeah. Great. If you had the opportunity to speak to the 20 year old you, what would you say? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, eh, oh, that's... Yeah. Um, man, there's so many fun, so many inappropriate ones. <laughs> there's so many of them. Yeah. Don't don't go don't go to that club that night. <laughs> Don't invite that girl to your 21st. <laughs> when you meet this one, don't lie to her. <laughs> Tell her the truth. You'd be great. Yeah. I think... Um, I think... Focus on being happy. Be real. Life isn't about having the best watch, the best car, going to the, you know, going to the nicest places. Do things to make you happy. And I think it's difficult because happiness at that age was going on the best holiday, having the nicest watch, car, clothes, whatever it might be. Yeah. And, um, and it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, Although I still have nice clothes and nice watches and <laughs> stuff like that now, so I'll probably say, but, yeah, anyway, but, yeah, the, it sounds really like a hippie, inner peace and stuff like that, sounds well, like the, the, the weirdest, oldest hippie, but... <laughs> that's all right. Man, just be, just be real, just be honest, don't, don't feel that I have to, uh, don't feel that you have to have this sort of persona. I've got a wall, is sort of nonsense up and just be yourself and, and relax and enjoy your life yeah um yeah <laughs> obviously there's other ones i would I'll, I'll tell you off i'll tell you when we're not filming <laughs> the other ones but yeah no i love that answer don't, yeah great. don't go to that nightclub <laughs> if you could change anything in the world what would it be and why Ooh. Man, that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> Just one thing. Hmm, it'd have to be something to do with money. Because uh, I like money. I like spending it. Don't have enough of it. But it seems to be the root of all problems. You know, you talk about you talk about religion and guys talking about religion, but really, for me, it, money drives everything. Yeah, the the greed of of other leaders and countries and stuff like that drives everything so yeah. I don't know do you know what I met <laughs> when I was in the hospital I met a guy who said that he would ban money and I mocked him but when you think of it, hold on a minute if you just said there's no money yeah ban money <laughs> you know companies we make something and we trade and I was like that's not a bad idea but yeah, I would I would distribute the. Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> One thing to change the world. You hope when you get asked a question like that, that you come up with something really deep and meaningful <laughs> and that, and you're gonna I'm gonna end up coming up and saying that you know you can get a McDonald's breakfast at, at two o'clock instead of half ten. Something really, really, really 
revolting and selfish and <laughs> but um it is I'd, do you know what genuinely would love to see all medicine all medication all all medical treatments and things open to everybody mm. even even in in scotland for example this is this is actually quite coming sounding like i know what i'm talking about in scotland there is there's almost like a postcode lottery with regards to treatments for your ms so it would be great and obviously you know we're looking at other countries all over the world third world countries that you know, children are dying with, with conditions that are so treatable. Mm-hmm. And it would be great to do, do you know what? We've got all the medicine, we've got all that we can have, everybody gets it. Whether you're in Ethiopia, whether you're in Portobello, whether you're in Mayfair in London, Germany, everybody just gets it. Um, would be great, you know. But I can't really think of anything else that's any, <laughs> any less sort of selfish other than... Yeah. Give me invincibility. Or <laughs> uh, something, a superhero power, but no. I think your I think your money answer's spot on, and and it's funny. I think it was yesterday that I was kind of reflecting on that question myself, and thinking, you know, if I was asked that, what would I say? And the thing that really stuck with me was probably um, eradicate or eliminate the monetary system. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think, as you're saying, it is, it's just well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 difficult to conceive, or, or I suppose. Um, picture a world in which there isn't money because it does pose its challenges but mm-hmm. there's it, it's kind of like why is society built like this i just sort of think to myself right you you look at america i don't know what their, their debt is just now but there were something like trillions of pounds in debt yeah or dollars i should say i'd be like could i imagine going to the bank and i've got like a, a 1.2 million pound overdraft and i'm earning 30 grand a year <laughs> They know they're not seeing that one point <laughs> yeah. two million. So why do they why do they even bother still saying yo mate? Yeah, yeah. They'd be as well just going, yeah. well, right, okay, you bumped us. You know what I mean? I sort of feel like one point three or one point four trillion, we're never gonna be able to pay you back. So what are you gonna do? Yeah. You can't repossess the country. So, you know, it kinda of, I know what you're coming from. It's kinda of like so is there gonna be a point where we can get real? Because it's we do, you talk about it and then it says we don't have the money for it and things like that, and I'm like, well, okay. But it's not like somebody's going into a tilt to take the money out to hand it to them. Uh-huh. It's I just yeah, there needs there needs to be something done. What they, how they do it, God knows. But um, that's that's when you can go down the route of talking about independence and Brexit yeah, yeah, yeah. and oh, that just that makes my nose bleed. If I'm being honest <laughs> with you, um, <sighs> I've been asked recently as well to to sort of endorse people for for local elections and things like that. And to be honest. I'm starting to find myself drifting more into the, the political side of things. And I quite I quite like it. And I've wondered, do you know what, do you know, all the sort of Del Boy antics as a kid <laughs> and growing up. I thought, am I actually morphing myself into like the the, the world's worst politician? <laughs> you know what I mean? I've seen I can imagine the scandals and stuff like that, you know, and the kiss and tells and oh it'd be scary. But no, I think um Money, yeah, money, never a truer saying made in jest that the root of all evil, it does, it causes so many problems and I think as much as we have this um, thing in the media now where they're they're sort of blaming um, radical Islamists and things like that, I think money money has has been the the root of all these conflicts and things like that and I don't know, I don't know how you fix it but yeah. 
America's not going to be able to pay 1.3 trillion. Who are they kidding? <laughs> I feel like, yeah. I, you know, I feel like maybe I go to the bank on the way home and say, listen, if America's allowed 1.3 billion <laughs> trillion as an overdraft, yeah. how's about increasing mines to 500? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go and get a new pair of shoes. <laughs> oh, Dean, I've loved uh, talking to you. It's been a brilliant interview. Um, your story is just the, you know, the epitome of, of, of inspiration, really. I mean, um, the amount that you've achieved, as you were talking about, over the time since your diagnosis is just astonishing. And um, I, I wish you, you know, every uh, success on your, on the, the, you know, the rest of your, your journey and um, your future marathons and all sorts of other challenges. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And one thing that really, I suppose, I was thinking about was the fact that you don't, look sick you know mm -hmm. you don't act as though you've got anything wrong with you and i suppose it's that understanding that we don't know what other people are dealing with we don't mm -hmm. we can't understand other people's um you know perspectives so being kind of cognizant of that is so important no absolutely um i've wrote a, a thing recently i've not uh, put out there yet but it was a it's an open letter to ms because come may uh, when i do marathon number eight That'll be four years since my very first marathon. So, uh, you know, I look at, let's, let's have a wee, a wee look back and, mm -hmm. and I've wrote an open letter to MS as, as, as a person. And it's quite <laughs> funny because I use a bit of bad language in it and my mate always criticises, Philip's always like, no, you need to take that out, that's too rude and stuff. But um, it was really just for me as a, kind of like a, a sort of cathartic experience of getting mm -hmm. it all out there. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and in that, I did say, do you know what? People are actually starting to feel sorry for you to, uh, as I'm directing it to MS. So I'm like, you know what? People are actually starting to feel sorry for you because they keep seeing all these things I'm doing and they're like, well, where's, where's, where is he? Where's MS? Can't see him. Hmm. Is he, has Dean beat him? Has he, has he evicted him? What's, you know, what's going on here? They don't, yeah. they don't understand it. And it's, and it, how, how can I get someone to sympathise with me or empathy, empathize with me that I'm, you know, the the turmoil that my body's in inside and what what I'm battling on a daily basis. They, when they can't see it, mm. um, I got a bad injury in my shin. I ruptured an artery in my shin, and I got overwhelming sympathy for that. I had people offering to come and cook my food, and because I had a visible injury. But it was nothing in comparison to the pain and discomfort that I'm that I dealt with on a daily basis through MS. Yeah. But it is the the realization that people can see that and they can't see MS, and that's a sneaky, horrible side of MS. You know. Uh -huh. when you, and again, through the through that little open letter thing that I've written is, I say, you know, you're very sneaky <laughs> because people can't see you, mm -hmm. and you wreck people from the inside out, and. And it is, and it's, it's one of these things. Uh, some of the people with MS get really, really offended by, oh, you look, you're looking well, but whereas I'm, you know, I'm a vain, self-centered man, so I'm like, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Tell me again. <laughs> and um, but yeah, but, but it's funny. Some people can get offended at the opening of an envelope, but yeah, some guys, guys and girls with MS will get really offended with that. And I'm like, well. Why? We know it's an invisible illness. Yeah. I don't want somebody's sympathy every day. You know, it's nice if somebody says, listen, you're looking well today. Mm. 
you know, you don't look, you don't look well, unwell. It's it's honesty. Yeah, it's it's intended as a compliment. Yeah, yeah and yeah. It, and it's coming from a good place. And and, yeah. and another thing is, you know, I thanked MS. I said, by the way, I, I, I owe you a big thanks because listen, the last four years, I've done all these different things, and Prime Minister invited me to his house, and you know, never in a million years did I ever anticipate that that would be the case. And I've had letters from the Prime Minister and stuff. It's brilliant. It is great, whether you like him or not, or whatever. It's <laughs> yeah, the office yeah. of the, the the country, and um, that's all because of MS. So, mm. without being disrespectful to people that are struggling and, and fighting MS every day, MS has probably been the best thing that's ever happened to me because it's made me realise how strong I am. It's made me realise how powerful and influential I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's given me a direction. It's given me more focus. And it's given me the opportunity to show the boys, the three boys, mm-hmm. when you roll your sleeves up and you get stuck in what you can achieve. And um, I'll be eternally grateful for, probably actually the reason I found out I had MS so quickly was, was through Mike's partner. So as much as uh, for anything else, I've got to be I've got to be grateful that at that moment in time I was with someone that, that cared enough to push me yeah. to go and get checked and go and, and pushed me to to continually uh, go back and get the eye checked and, and find out what it was because I might never have found it yeah. and I might have found out 15 years later at which point it was too late to, to do the sort of things I'm doing now uh-huh. so yeah thank you MS and let's let's see what you've what you've got because so far you've not you've, you're not winning <laughs> Oh, that's a great note to finish on. Dean, thank you for all your honesty and um yeah, thank you so much for your for your, your time. Not a problem, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, Dean. <laughs>